All right, I'm live a minute early. So as soon as people jump on, if they can let me know that they hear me, that would be awesome. I'll wait till exactly 10 to get started, though. I'm in my office. Some of you guys haven't been here before. Um, so th this is stuff like my degree. Wow, this is weird because it's reversed. My degree, um, this over here is a piece that my buddy Matt did. Um, and then this is a hymn I got uh, from Leaders Collective. So Hannah's telling me she hears me. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to wait another minute just because I had to. Uh, I'm not a live stream expert. So I think I set this to where you can rewind. So hopefully you guys can. So if you jump on late, um, it won't be a weird thing where you're not sure where we're at. But um, basically, I don't exactly know how this works. So I um, jumped on this morning. And apparently the post that I had created from earlier this week was set as a key that you can use for software that I don't have. Um, so I couldn't use, um, my computer. So this isn't fancy schmancy. Um, I'm not setting up with a pulpit. Um, I'm just, I'm preaching from my laptop to you guys, but hopefully, um, that's good. So it's about 10. I'm going to give it one more minute and then, um, I'll jump in to our time this morning, but hope you guys are doing okay. Um, we're good at our house. Things are going well. So I don't know if you guys have cool activities. One thing I'll say, um, if you are um, at home and you have kids and you want to do some like cool stuff with them, if you go back to our Facebook page, we have a post on there. So uh, the curriculum we use, Gospel Project, which is a great curriculum, has offered to post their stuff for free. So there's instructions on how you can access that. So there's some really cool um, different things that you can do with your kids, a video, some activities, and that way your kids can participate in worship this morning. Also, we put up uh, a link on Spot for Spotify and on um, YouTube because I know and I, I don't have Apple Music. Sorry, guys. And I have Apple everything else, but that's just how I did it. And you can access some different music and enjoy it that way. We'll keep posting some different things. So I'll just go ahead and start this morning and uh, give you guys a couple quick things. Um, I just want to say first and foremost, I know that this format is not ideal. Um, I really do. I know that there is a profound value in gathering with the saints. That's what we want, really, right? We want to be together as the people of God, singing together, worshiping together. And it's difficult in a moment like this to know, hey, like, what do we do here? Um, so... I've never been necessarily a massive fan of live streaming because I think um, it can perpetuate this idea that church is a thing that we can click on to, but it, it's not. It's a people that we are a part of. But again, I know that in this specific moment, this is a way in which we can love our neighbors and we can also honor our leaders. And so that's why we're not gathering together today. But um, I think that this is a significant and profoundly important thing that we do is still hear from God's word and still be together. So before we jump into the sermon, um, I just want to give two quick points. And so I know there's a lot going on with the coronavirus, with some panic buying and with some uncertainty. So North Carolina schools are closed for the next two weeks. And uh, maybe some of you guys are scrambling to figure out plans and details. I know we are. And it can just feel like there's a lot. But I want to give two quick points um, about this moment in time that we're at as a church. And then we'll just jump into the text. So the first thing is, how do we have hope? Um, and the second thing is, how do we love our neighbors? So for the first point, hope, um, I just want to say this because 
it's important that we hear this. We have every reason to trust that this epidemic will pass. There's certainly going to be some economic lingering pain. Um, there's certainly going to be some people who experience um, hardship and pain through this. And so we don't want to act like nothing is going wrong, but we also want to understand that we have every reason to trust that this will pass. And we can reasonably hope that the economic costs of this epidemic, though severe in the short run, that they will be limited in the way that past epidemics have been. That's what we're hopeful for. But more specifically than that, as believers, as Christians, man, we should be people who have hope in the midst of chaos and crisis we need to be people of peace. We need to be people who uh, just have a resounding joy and hope. So this is from the Heidelberg Catechism. Maybe you guys haven't grown up in that tradition or heard these catechisms, which were ways in which um, you could learn the basics, the foundations of our faith through question and answer. And so this question is, what is your only hope in life and death? And the answer the Heidelberg Catechism gives us is that I am not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid fully for all my sins with his precious blood. He set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. That's our hope, right? That's what gives us contentment and peace, even when things are uncertain. And so I would just petition you as we're in these um, days which can feel dark, um, it takes a moment away from social media, takes a moment away from the news. Um, start your mornings in the Word. I'm going to talk a little bit about that in just a moment. But but be careful to not lose hope in the midst of chaos and not to become panicky, but to trust in the Lord. And that's not to say that you um, shouldn't have concern, but that you shouldn't let that concern leave you to overwhelming anxiety. Um, the second thing I would say is how can we be good neighbors, right? So in a time like now, it, it seems like we're really focused on what can I do for my family? How can I get the things that I need? What can I do? And so I would just really petition you that this is an incredible opportunity for us as the church to be good neighbors um, and to love others well. Uh, so a pastor that I really respect, an incredible writer, his name's Scott Sauls. And if you guys read the, the coronavirus update that we put out there, um, this is something he said that I think is absolutely amazing. He said, in a time like now, Christian neighboring looks less like fearful self-preservation and more like servanthood towards the elderly, those with HIV, autoimmune disease, or no healthcare, fatigued and under-resourced healthcare workers, etc. And then he says this, wash hands for sure, then wash feet. Wash hands for sure, then wash feet. Coram Deo, that's our call. We have to be a people who are loving our neighbors well, who are seeking to serve them well. And so there's a lot of things that we can be doing, even in this moment where it feels like we're kind of quarantined and we don't really know where to head out. The first thing is, let's keep our ears and eyes open to local organizations that do incredible things like Meeting Place and Burke United Christian Mission, who are seeking to love those who are less fortunate, to work with the homeless population, to make sure that they're being adequately cared for and loved. So there are ways in which we can channel resources and encouragement towards them. Uh, 
But just practically, where do you live, whether it's in your apartment building or in your neighborhood? Do you have elderly neighbors? Do you have immune compromised neighbors? Do you have neighbors who work in healthcare? This is a chance for you to check in on them, to encourage them to say, hey, I know that this is a frightening time and I know you maybe don't want to go to the grocery store. So if you need me to get anything for you, let me go grab it for you. If I can do anything for you, if I can help you, if I can just maybe call you on the phone and listen to you, if I can come sit with you, whatever it may be, this is an opportunity where we can really be the hands and feet of Jesus in our neighborhoods. So that's just something practical we can do. The other thing is pray for and encourage healthcare workers. I know several of you guys uh, within our own body work in healthcare, and this is going to be a challenging few weeks. You're going to have people who are panic stricken, who think that they have the virus, who may not. And then you're going to have people who potentially do, and that can offer some anxiety and fear. And so uh, let's, let's make sure that we're reaching out to those that we know in the healthcare world, loving on them, praying for them, encouraging them, asking them if maybe we can bring them a meal. Maybe we can just, you know, get them some groceries. Maybe we can pray for them, give them a chance to catch some respite. And then this last one is huge, right? So yesterday the governor issued um, this, this statewide mandate that schools have to close for the next two weeks. And that's pretty intense. Um, that's going to be pretty challenging. I know for Hannah and I, yesterday we just sat down and we're like, okay, what do we do? How do we work on this? So, you know, what is this changes everything for us? You know, it changes my schedule, it changes her schedule, and um, we just started looking at what we can do, talking to our neighbors and collaborating. And I think something that we can do is, especially for those of us who maybe work in education, and now all of a sudden we have an extended two week break. This is a great opportunity to say, you know what? I'm going to knock on some doors. I'm going to call some friends. And if they have kids who need childcare, I'm going to see if I can't help. Even if it's only for a few hours during the day. Again, this is a way that we can be loving and encouraging our neighbors. And I think that's massive. That's so huge that we would do that, that we would continue to just bless others and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Um, so for me, I want to just encourage you guys as we kind of enter into this new week and we have Monday on the horizon, what is going to be so easy for you and I is to be glued to our phones. So for me, I gave up social media and um, for, for Lent. And so being on Facebook, I'm kind of cheating on that right now. But traditionally, you break that fast on Sundays anyways. So here we are. Um, and I remember this week when everything started to kind of unfold, my only outlet was mass market media was 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 news so i was just clicking the news app on my phone and scrolling through and i'm telling you guys panic starts to settle in i started to think you know like hey do we have enough toilet paper we have plenty of toilet paper i'm not gonna go panic buy toilet paper but that's what everyone starts to do our hearts start to worry and instead of going to the king of the ages who spoke the universe into being i go to comment sections on news articles to see what what should i do and that shouldn't be our guideline I'm not saying that we shouldn't stay informed. We absolutely should. We need to know what's going on. We need to know how to best care for our families, but we need to take moments of reprieve. Um, we need to understand how and in and, and, and what ways we can seek to love and serve our neighbors, what ways we can love and serve our families well. So I actually sent this to um, our uh, kids leaders yesterday just because it's really easy. So there's a couple different things that we can do to have self-care during the season. The first is let's begin and in our day in prayer and walking through scripture. And so I'm going to give you guys some resources for that. 
The first thing is if you have the, the CBR journal, the Community Bible Reading Journal, let me just petition you. If you've kind of gotten out of practice with that, now is a great time to just jump in on this and to start reading and to start really spending some time in Scripture. So the best part about the Community Bible Reading Journal is that we would read both a passage from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then we would communicate with each other. So if you've kind of gotten out of practice of that, you don't know who to text, you don't know who to start with, this is a great place to jump in and just maybe grab a friend or two and say, hey, let's just spend some time encouraging each other with what we're reading in scripture. That's a great place to start. Um, maybe you don't have a CBR journal, you haven't picked one of those up yet from our Connect table, that's totally fine. Um, if you want, you can uh, PM me after this, message me, and I'll see if I can't get one to you this week. But in addition to that, let me just say this. Um, I'm going to every morning on the Quorum Deo blog, so we'll post it on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I'm going to be posting a different uh, way in which we can spend time meditating in God's Word, um, different practices we can do. These are things I've learned from other men uh, who have taught me faithfully, and I just think it'd be a great resource for you guys. And so I'm going to just post different things that you can do to start your day or end your day in God's Word to just feed your souls. Um, the other thing I would say is take in national news in small doses, right? Make sure you're staying informed, but don't be crushed by it. Limit your social media scrolling, right? The more we time we spend just scrolling on Facebook, looking at Instagram stories, the more that like our hearts can kind of just be drawn into that. Um, let's not just trauma bond either. Let's not just talk each other to each other solely about uh, the virus. Let's let's have healthy conversations where we're sharing uh, clear feelings. We're sharing our needs, our requests. Let's make sure we get a good night's sleep. And I know that can be hard when you're anxious, when you're worried. You know, when maybe you have allergies and you cough, and you're like, "Wait a minute!" You know, when when that happens, like let's try and rest our minds and take some time. And so that may mean that you need to stop binge watching, right? That may mean that you need to stop scrolling on Facebook so that you can actually get an adequate night's sleep. Maybe turn off notifications on your phone at night, um, put it on Do Not Disturb, and make sure you take care of yourself so that you can allow yourself to be present for your family and that you can hear from the voice of God. So let's make sure that we take moments to do that. So I'm going to have stuff coming out again for you guys. Um, tomorrow morning, we'll post the first thing in the morning, and I'll try and have something every single day so that you guys have um, a resource to utilize during this time. All right, so that's what I've got as far as everything that's going on in the world. Let's go ahead and let's jump into our passage this morning, and then we will spend some time looking at Jesus as our great high priest. So we are looking at Hebrews, and we are going to be in chapter 4 today. And actually, before we do that, I want to go ahead and extend the welcome. So if you're watching this and you don't go to Quorum Deo Church um, and you've never heard this before, that's okay. But for those of you uh, who are a part of Quorum Deo, I hope this is encouraging to you. So let's hear this welcome. To all who are weary and need rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares. To all who fail and desire strength. To all who sin and need a savior. To all who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And to whoever will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Today we're going to be in Hebrews. We're going to be looking at chapter 4, and we're going to just look at the, the last little chunk here of chapter 4, starting in verse 14. And it says this, Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for you, that you would love us, that you would care for us. God, you are sovereign. You have been sovereign over the Black Plague. You've been sovereign over the Spanish flu. You've been sovereign over H1N1, and you're sovereign over the coronavirus right now. God, I pray that you would replace fear and anxiety with hope and love for our neighbors. I pray, God, that you would teach us from your word of truth right here, right now. God, that we would be a people of peace, that we would be a people who trust and rely on you, that we would be wise, that we would seek to honor others, that we would, yes, take the precautions that are necessary, but that we would still seek to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would teach us from your word this morning. I pray that you would illuminate it for our understanding, that you would stir our hearts, compel us towards obedience, God. Make much of Jesus in this, we pray. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are continuing to look at our series that we've called Jesus, the name above every name. So what we're doing is we're looking at the offices of Jesus. We're looking at the life and ministry of Jesus as we are in the Lenten season. This is a season that leads us into Holy Week, into Easter, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And so what better, what more fitting way to celebrate this season than to look at the one whose name is above every name, Jesus Christ himself. And so we have been looking at these offices of Jesus, what it is that he has accomplished for us. And today we find ourselves looking at Jesus as the great high priest. We started looking at um, offices that typically go together last week, that is prophet, priest, king. We looked at Jesus as the true prophet. And today we kind of transition to Jesus as the great high priest. Now this is interesting because priest is actually the only title that's given to Jesus that has an entire book virtually in the New Testament explaining it. And that's the letter of Hebrews. And so, yes, we're going to zoom in on our specific passage, but we're really going to be jumping all over Hebrews this morning. And Hebrews is an incredible book. It's an anonymous letter. Its author describes it as kind of just a brief word of encouragement or exhortation, which is a word that just means a challenge and an encouragement. And the bulk of this encouragement is this, this challenge, this exhortation to consider Jesus, that, that the Hebrews should be looking to Jesus and especially to see him as our high priest. So for me, I remember when I was in college, I uh, had this internship in New York, 
and I didn't know anyone. It was pretty intimidating. And I decided to load up my 1984 Volkswagen Golf, which was the best car you have ever seen. It was so cool. I'm not even kidding. I loved this car. It had a crankback moonroof, which means basically it had a sunroof, but it was solid. So I literally would just wind it back and part of the roof would go back and you could stick your head out of it. It was so great, so dumb. No cruise control, barely could get up to speed. I loved that little car. It was so silly. And I drove that puppy all the way from Missouri to New York. On my way there, I got a hotel in Akron, Ohio. I was by myself. I was alone, 21 years old, not sure if I'm nuts or not. And I just remember calling my brother um, and just being panic stricken. I, I was going to go work with people I'd never met before in a place I'd never lived before. Was I nuts? There were other options I had. I had an opportunity to do an internship in North Carolina where I could be with my family and still visit people. I had an opportunity in Missouri where I could be with my brother, and I wasn't really sure what I was doing. And I remember calling my brother and just saying, man, what am I doing? And I'll never forget his words to me. He said, Billy, that's just what disciples of Jesus do. They follow wherever he leads. You got to be willing to look to Jesus in moments of fear like this. And even though I knew I was going to be lost a little bit and it was going to be intimidating and challenging. I knew that I wasn't going because this was some great opportunity to further my career. Maybe that was part of it, but really I was going because I felt like that's where Christ wanted me to go. And so I was to look to Jesus in a moment of fear, to consider Jesus. And that's really the first point of what Paul, of what the author of Hebrews, almost said Paul, the author of Hebrews who we don't know is asking the Hebrews to do. He's asking them to consider Jesus. So that's where we start this morning. Our first point is this, consider Jesus. Now, why is that important to the Hebrews? They had been experiencing the same trials as Paul and other Jews when they became Christians. Here's the thing. When you became a Christian in the first century Jewish world, that meant that you were disinherited. So Paul says he suffered the loss of all things. And really any Jew that had become a Christian, that was true of them. This was the fate of so many who had come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And even still today, if you are part of a strict Orthodox Jewish family, becoming a Christian, you may literally be disinherited. So clearly, many of these young Christians had suffered great material uh, private. Uh, they they'd suffered great material loss as they had faith in Jesus. Right, all these things that they had once held dear are now gone. Not only are they personally disinherited, but they're also both socially and spiritually excommunicated. So for just a second, put yourself in their shoes. Think about it. You love your family, right? You regularly participate in your community. You're a law-abiding citizen. But as soon as you commit your life to Jesus, you're disinherited. So what does that mean? What follows? Well, you kind of just become a public enemy in everything. Every society, club, network, social friendship, schools, all the things that make up the fabric of your life, all of that's now closed to you. You're excommunicated from your family. You're excommunicated from society. In addition, the place that you used to worship, right? The place that you have been going to since you were a kid, they're closed. The place that was ingrained in your life, its services, its songs, its ceremonies, everything that you were a part of, you're now no longer allowed to meet there. Instead, instead of being in all the places that you felt comfortable, you're with a number of other people sitting in a friend's living room. That's the situation of the readers of Hebrews. 
No longer is their worship marked by the grandeur of the temple. No longer is it marked by these special moments, these big things. No longer do they catch a sight of the high priest, the only man who once a year on the day of atonement was allowed to enter the sacred room to seek God's forgiveness for the people. No longer do they wait for him to reappear and raise his hands and the Arianic blessing, assuring them of the Lord's benediction, his peace, that there's forgiveness between him and them. This visible sense that their sins had once again been covered and that the face of God is now smiling upon them as his covenant people. It's all gone. It's never coming back unless they go back. And that's the thing. Many of the Hebrews were tempted to go back. Again, I think back to my time on staff at a church in Columbia, right? Columbia is a college town. And so we had lots of kids who would graduate from college and they would get plugged in upon graduation. They would scatter all over the country. And once uh, they would leave, they'd ask, hey man, can you help me find somebody, like a, a church that I could plug in, be a part of? And we would always oblige, we'd see what we could do. We would you know, get on Google, we'd make some phone calls, we, we would try and connect them to a good local body where they could worship and participate and be a part. And I remember talking with several folks as they're getting settled in their new town and they would just pine for their old days in Columbia. They'd be like, yeah man, you know, uh, things are going okay here, but man, if we could just go back, if we could just get back there to, to that church and with our friends, man, we just can't find anything like that here. That's kind of the situation that the first readers of Hebrews are going through here. You see, in former days, they could literally see and touch and even smell the worship service. There was this great company of people. There was music they were familiar with. There were all of the glorious aspects of Old Testament worship that God had given them, and now it's all gone. Was it all gone for nothing? What's the answer? How could the author of Hebrews write anything to encourage them in this situation? And here's his response. His response is basically to say, don't turn back. Don't turn back. Right? If you're tempted to it, then you have been looking in the wrong direction. He's saying, listen, you guys are looking at all these material things. You're, you're seeing things from the wrong perspective. You're not looking far enough. You're not seeing clearly enough. Don't you see what's actually really important? Listen, get your eyes off of the building. Stop looking at the temple. Get your eyes off of liturgies. Get your eyes off of crowds. Get your eyes and ears off of music and fix your eyes on Jesus. Quorum Deo, we have to do the same. We have to consider Jesus. I think for many of us in the early days of church planning, we kind of all come into this with different ideas, different preferences of how do we want church to look like, right? And that's kind of some of the attractive thing of church planning. Again, we're low resource, so we're not going to have like the most, you know, big ball in kids ministry. We're not going to have the most grandiose worship ministry, but we're young and we're shaping things. And so there's a chance to almost, as it were, make an imprint on the church plant to shape it a little bit into your preferences. But if our, our focus, if our hope is that we can make the church look more like us, man, that's not good. Instead, would we make it more like Jesus? Would we fix our eyes on Jesus? Listen to the things that the author of Hebrews says to, to his audience to encourage them about Jesus, right? In, in Hebrews 4, he tells them that Jesus is their high priest, right? That's what we read this morning. And in chapter 7, he says, look, y'all have a real salvation. 
Then he goes on in seven and eight to say that Jesus, he's the high priest and he's perfect. And then he says this, catch this. Not only is Jesus our high priest, not only is he perfect, he's better. He is the better high priest. And then he says this in Hebrews chapter 9. He says this in verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Here's what the author of Hebrews is saying to them. Hey, I know you're looking and you're pining for the days and you love the day of atonement because you felt this certainty that God is looking down on you. He's happy with you. But listen, you have a final sacrifice. You don't need a high priest to make sacrifices. Hebrews 12 tells us that the, that they don't need to pine for the temple, that they need to just look to Mount Zion and see there's a better sanctuary that they have. The author of Hebrews is saying to his audience, and he's saying to us, what will keep you going, what will keep all of us going in the way of the gospel, in the way of Jesus, is catching a glimpse of his greatness and knowing that he is our great high priest. Cormdale, you have not lost. You have gained. You have gained. You do not have less. You and I have more. We have more. Christ has done everything that generations and generations of high priests could not do. They are only a shadow of the reality that Jesus is. Last week, we talked about Jesus' ministry as a prophet and how there's both a finished and an unfinished dimension to that, 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 that he is uh, present in us, in our lives right here, right now, even though he has secured and finished his work already. This is a, a reality that, that shows up in all of these offices of, of prophetic, priestly, and kingly. So let's consider second, Christ's finished and ongoing work as high priest. Consider his finished work. So the first thing here, Jesus has cried, it is finished, right? On the cross of Calvary, he declared, it is finished. In his death and resurrection, he has done everything necessary for our salvation. He has done everything necessary that you and I would have our salvation accomplished. And now he is applying it. So again, there's this unfinished or ongoing work. He has an ongoing ministry. Again, y'all, this isn't just about what Jesus did, but about what he is currently doing. As prophet, he continues to speak to man from God. But Hebrews 2 brings these kind of two dimensions of Jesus' finished and unfinished work together in a remarkable way. Here's what it says in Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 17. It says this, since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he has made he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
So let's notice the two aspects of Jesus's work. The first thing, verses 14 through 15 of chapter 2, he delivers us from bondage to Satan. And then verse 17, he delivers us from the wrath of God. Jesus does both of these things through his ministry as our great high priest. You see, his sin, the sin that was, was on him, his sin offering of himself deals with our guilt and propitiates. What that word means is that he satisfies God's wrath and then he sets us free from the grip of Satan. Since Jesus has tasted death for us, he was sinless but became sin on our behalf. Death is no longer the wages of sin, but has become the entrance into everlasting life, right? Because Jesus has taken on our punishment, we now have hope and hope eternal. The leverage that Satan has used to fill us with fear has been destroyed. We are now free at last. Here, what Hebrews is doing is he's contrasting Jesus's finished work with the never-ending work of the Old Testament priest, because the priest had to continually bring animal sacrifices every day, every year. But these could never take away sin because, one, they were repeated day by day. So it's obvious that they cannot fully and completely and finally take away our guilt. They were inadequate, actually even inappropriate sacrifices for man's sins, right? How can an animal possibly substitute for the sins of a man or the sins of a woman? But Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice, man in place of men. His full, perfect, appropriate sacrifice is fully accepted by God. That's why God raised him from the dead and he's now seated at the right hand of God. And he does not continue to stand like the priest of old in daily repetition of his sacrifice. He has no need to. As the high priest who is himself the sacrifice, he is done. He has finished his atoning work. In Christ, our sins are fully and finally forgiven. There's a remarkable picture of this in the Old Testament in the annual Day of Atonement, which we've already men mentioned. So on that day, what would happen is the high priest would take two goats. So there's one goat that would be slain. Its blood would be offered as a sacrifice. But this other goat, this other goat was a scapegoat where he would go, he would confess the sins of all the people before it, and then it would be taken into the wilderness. And this scapegoat would carry into the wilderness the sins confessed over its head. It was released into no man's land. It was bearing the weight, the people's sin and guilt. And what this does is it presents a vivid illustration of the two aspects of Jesus' atoning work on the cross. The big theological words we see for this is propitiation and expiation, that our sins have been, uh, the wrath has been absorbed and our sins have been removed, right? Jesus shed his blood as the high priest who gave himself on the cross as the final sacrifice for our sin. But on the cross, he was also taken through the power of the spirit into the no man's land between heaven and earth. And in that lonely wilderness where he bore our sins, he experienced an indescribable sense of alienation from God, that Jesus was rejected by men. He tasted death as the wages of our sin and as the curse of God, and that he went into the presence of God as if he were the only sinner in the world, enduring the full wrath of God, entering into the unspeakable black hole of desolation, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why am I forsaken by you? There in that darkness, Jesus became both the sacrifice 
and the scapegoat for our sins. His blood shed for us. It sets guilty consciences free and it brings us peace with God. Right? We sing this hymn all the time. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You see, what we must understand is that underneath all of our fears, right? Everything that's going on this week, all, all of the, the deep anxiety that we have, underneath all of those fears is the fear of death. Because the fear of death creates all other fears and lurks underneath all manner of neurosis. Until this central fear, the fear of death, is dealt with, then all of our other fears linger on. Why is that? Because only when we are delivered from the great fear, the fear of death, the fear of judgment, that's when all other fears become trivial. They can be dissolved only by the knowledge that I need not fear. I need not fear death because the guilt of my sin has been borne by my Savior. There's a story of two friends at a funeral. One friend had tragically lost his daughter. I can't even imagine what it would be like to bury a child. This other friend approaches and he sees his dear friend who is just broken, who is burying his daughter. And he approaches him tenderly to offer him comfort. And the father who had lost his child simply says, We know now that we have nothing left to fear. We know now that we have nothing left to fear. And that's heavy. But Cormdeo, that's it. We have nothing left to fear. All of this is true only because Jesus has dealt with our greatest problem. The problem is not simply that of our fear. Our greatest problem is God himself. Because by our very nature, right, Ephesians, what we spent time in tells us that we are all under his wrath and we deserve to be. That if we cannot deal with our sin, with our guilt, then we certainly cannot deal with the wrath of God. But it's precisely to bear this wrath that Jesus, as our great high priest, goes into the holy place, the very presence of the holy God, and there he experiences the awful unleashing of divine judgment. This is why when the resurrected Jesus reveals himself to his disciples, his first word is shalom, peace. Now at last, you have peace with God. This is Jesus' finished work as priest. I think most of us as believers were pretty familiar with the finished work of Christ, but less so with his ongoing, his unfinished work. But the author of Hebrews helps us to understand that although, yes, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, having finished his atoning work, he is still doing something. He now undertakes his unfinished work. Last week, I mentioned knowing a lot of hymns. Um, again, I, I, being in this country church for a number of years was an amazing experience. I learned a lot of hymns. I made fun of bringing in the sheaves. Sorry if you like that one. But one of the hymns we sang that stands out to me is a hymn called Jesus Stands Among Us or Jesus Stand Among Us. I'm sorry. What does that mean, Jesus Stand Among Us? Well, if you're not a Christian, you have little to no idea what this is all about, right? It's going to be a total mystery. That may be one of the reasons why if you attend a worship service, if you go to a church gathering, you might find the Bible dull. You might find worship songs and hymns weird, maybe just strange. You might find sermons boring. 
it's because you maybe have never experienced the presence of Jesus standing among his people, making the Bible a living book, making the songs of the saints make sense, and making the sermons life-transforming. The author of Hebrews is teaching us that this is a central element in Jesus's ongoing priestly ministry. He is among his people when they come together. He is present in our worship. Hebrews 8.2, it uses a word where we get our word liturgy from. What it's saying is that part of Jesus's ongoing ministry is that he leads the worship of his people, right? Hebrews 8.2 says, A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Jesus leads every worship service you or I attend. Jesus does. He is the worship leader. He is. Right? We may have a music director in the church. We may have a band leader. We may have someone who's singing. Maybe someone playing piano. Maybe we have someone directing the choir. Uh, but that's not the worship leader, Jesus is, right? Maybe you're a pastor, but the one thing that none of us is, is a worship leader because Jesus is the true worship leader. This is what Hebrews 2.10 says all the way to 13. It says, for it was fitting that he from whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregations. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God have given me. Now here's what's incredible about this specific passage. These are the, the words that are being quoted are from Psalm 22. These are the words that are put into Jesus's mouth. And this is significant because Psalm 22 is what Jesus turns to during the later hours of his crucifixion, right? This is where the Psalm begins with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it ends, it ends in words of triumph, which Hebrews applies to Jesus's resurrection, his ascension and his ongoing ministry, particularly the aspect of his ongoing ministry that we often look over. And that's this, that Jesus, friends, he leads us. He is the worship leader. Jesus is the worship leader first because he comes by his spirit to minister his word. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. So how does he do this? Well, he does it through the exposition of scripture and the preaching of the word of God. He fulfills his promise, right? My sheep listen to my voice. And of course, the, this refers in the first instance to his disciples. But Jesus means so much more than that. He had other sheep who had never literally heard his voice, but they too are going to hear it and they're going to recognize it. So think about it this way. Remember when you were woken up by your parents when you were in school? Right? You hear your parents saying, hey, sweetie, it's time to get up. It's time to get up in the morning. They said, calling your name. And they were calling you to get up. They're calling you before you're even aware of it. At first, it's just a noise that's kind of awakening you. But then you recognize that you're being called by name. And you recognize the voice. And most of the time, hopefully, you actually get up, right? There's something similar that's happening when God's word is being preached in the power of the spirit. It's Jesus's voice that calls us. His voice awakens us spiritually. Slowly, we begin to realize that he's been at work in our lives and that he is calling us to come to him. We are disturbed out of our spiritual sleep, as it were. We're being called by name and we recognize Jesus's voice. This is what happens when the word is preached 
in the power of Jesus. Christ himself addresses our minds. He speaks to our hearts. He draws out our affections and he brings us to faith and repentance. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2 when he says, Christ came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. What he's saying is this preaching is is explicitly said to have taken place after Jesus had finished his work of atonement. So how was it that Jesus came and preached peace in Ephesus? Did he ever visit Ephesus? Well, in one sense, yes, because he came and preached through the preaching of Paul and his companions. And the same point is actually made in Romans 10, where it says, how can we believe in him whom we've never heard? Right? That's the simple truth. We need to hear Christ if we are to recognize his voice, if we are to come to trust him. There are stories of two people right, who hear the exact same sermon. One walks away deeply challenged, stirred, and compelled, and the other was just totally bored. They were super confused. They had no idea what was going on. How is that? How could they sit in the same seats, listen to the same sermon from the same preacher, but one does not hear the voice of Jesus calling him? Friends, Jesus can and does speak to us in the preaching of his word. And you and I should pray that hearts would be open to hear from him. This is our ongoing reality in worship, right? If it were not an ongoing reality, then we'd probably be inclined to just say, hey, you know what? We shouldn't preach anymore. Without this dimension, y'all, of Jesus speaking, I would look out at our congregation each week full of so many needs and just be totally lost. Why? Because my sermons cannot hope to address all of the needs of the congregation, nor do I have the ability to address them all in a single sermon. But when Jesus comes to church, when Jesus preaches his own word, when the one who speaks to us is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, then all of our needs can be met by him. You don't come to believe in Jesus Christ until you've heard him. Until then, he's just a character in a book. But when we meet Jesus, man, we become conscious that there is a totally different accent speaking to us. This is why, man, I'll find people who say something to me after the sermon. They'll be like, hey, man, has somebody been talking to you? Right? How do you know what's going on in my life? Who's, what's going on here? Like, how did you know that this specific set issue would hit me in such a profound way? The answer is no, nobody's talking to me about you, but perhaps somebody else has been talking to you about you. You see, when Jesus opens or speaks through his word, he begins a dialogue with our souls. He engages us at the deepest level, and we bow before him to say, Jesus, you have ministered your word to us. In some churches, the service is divided between worship and preaching or worship and teaching, but really there's no such division because when Jesus preaches his word to us, we know that we have been brought into communion with him and that the immediate fruit of that is worship we bring to him during the preaching as well as before or after it. So as our worship leader, Jesus also leads us not only through the preaching, but in our singing. Notice the words that Hebrew cites again from Psalm 22, verse 22. It says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This isn't just an abstract thing either, right? In Matthew 26, it says that Jesus sang a hymn with his disciples. I think sometimes we think that Jesus was kind of just a flat, cold personality. No, Jesus was a live, living, active, excited, joyful, singing person. And Jesus, friends, he leads us in song too. 
and true worship, Jesus is present and he is the one leading the singing. We sing with him who says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. We worship in union with Christ and we sing in union with him too. And that puts a whole new light on worship. Man, who doesn't want to sing with Jesus? He makes our singing give pleasure to his father. He sings of pray, his singing of praise. It covers all the inadequacy of ours, right? Whether you're a terrible singer or you're a great singer, but you have a wicked heart, Christ's singing of praises covers our inadequacies. We need to recover an awareness of this ministry of the Lord. Because that's what encourages us to sing and to sing with all our heart. Because Jesus is standing among his people saying, Father, I'm here. I'm in the congregation. I'm leading the praises of your people. Listen to them singing with me. Man, don't you love to hear this, Lord? We should think of this every time we start our worship together. We come to meet Jesus. We come to sing with him, to hear him speak to us, and to hear him speak to us in the preaching of his words and in the singing of the saints. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 3, verse 20, the risen Jesus speaks to the church in Laodicea, and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in, to, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Okay, here's the thing. These words are often used in evangelistic sense that you know, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart, but Jesus is actually addressing a church that's gathered for worship here. And what he's saying is he's talking about coming to their church. He Perhaps he's even specifically talking about his presence at their communion table. And when the Lord comes to us in this way, we are caught up in his presence and we praise him. We become conscious of Jesus' glory as his word is ministered to us. And we begin to understand that he's not only the preacher of the word, that he's the leader of our praises, that he's also and supremely the shepherd of our souls. Catch this, guys. Jesus is the ultimate pastor. Jesus is the lead pastor. I'm just a guy that serves under him, right? Because Jesus is the one who suffered in our flesh and blood. He's been tempted and overcome. We know that he's a priest who understands our weaknesses. And because he is with us, we can go to him. We know that he's able to save to the othermost. Everyone, anyone who comes to God through him. And we know he wants to because he calls us children. He says, here I am and the children you have given me. So as we come to this time today, are we singing with Jesus? Are we singing to Jesus? Are we hearing him now in the preaching of his word? Friend, what are you suffering? I know there's a lot going on in our world, but more specifically, zoomed in on you. What are you dealing with on a daily basis? How are you being tested? Maybe you feel like nobody knows what you're going through. Nobody could, could understand. Nobody could possibly get where you've been. Maybe you feel like nobody understands. Maybe you're saying, Jesus, he couldn't understand me. And my parents, my brothers and sisters, my coworkers, my friends, they don't understand me. Nobody does, and nobody cares. But Jesus' parents didn't understand him. His brothers and sisters, his friends, none of them understood him. Maybe you're saying people are against me. Well, people were against him. Maybe you're saying nobody understands me, but nobody understood Jesus. And maybe you agree with all this, but you say, yeah, but my pain is different. Maybe it is. But maybe it's the unspeakable pain that you've been abused. 
Maybe you've been taken advantage of. Possibly even worse. But I would petition you to think about Jesus. Think about his priestly ministry. As he became the sacrifice for our sins, he also tasted. Yes, he literally tasted the spit, the blood, the sweat. And he could feel. He felt the lacerations on his back. The physical abuse. And he knows what it's like to be stripped, to be beaten, to be exposed and humiliated in public. Jesus became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And you might say, yeah, yeah, but Jesus was sinless. That made him different. Yes, it made it different. That made the shame, that made the humiliation, that made it all the more intense and more distasteful for him. That's the reason that he's able to help you. That's the reason that Jesus can pastor you like no one else. Because Jesus has felt your weakness. Jesus has felt your shame and every atom, every fiber of his being. But he remained absolutely faithful to God in it. And so he is able to take you by the hand and introduce you in all your sense of shame to the Heavenly Father. Friends, look to this great high priest because he's been made like us in every respect. He can sympathize with you in your weakness because he has been tempted in every way like us. Even more, it says that he always lives to make intercession for them. And so he is able to save to the uttermost. And what that means is he is able to save you from the uttermost, whatever that might be in your life. Because Jesus holds his children in one hand and he holds on to the Father with the other hand. And he stands there and he draws near to him and he says, Father, here I am and here are the children that you have given me. I would just petition you may consider the words of before the throne of God above. If we were gathered together, this is what we were going to sing before we took communion. It says this, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. The reality, friends, of gospel worship is that this same Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, is present right here, right now. Wherever you're at watching this, Christ is present with you. Have you ever come to Jesus, trusted him, and said, My sins, Lord Jesus, you are the only one who can set my guilty conscience free. You're the only one who can break the bondage of my soul. You're the only one who can bring me into your presence and help me to praise, glorify, and enjoy God forever. And Jesus will do all this simultaneously. What a Savior. So friends, as we come to a close here, I just want to ask, are you trusting Jesus? Are you putting your faith in Jesus, are you resting in his finished work, his goodness, his grace, his glory? Christ is our high priest. He loves us and sympathizes with us in every way like no one else can. He longs to minister deeply to your soul. Will you spend time with Jesus? Let's pray together. God, we're so grateful for the hope that you've given us in Jesus. We're grateful, Lord, that beyond all you love us. You care for us. You minister to our souls deeply and profoundly.
God, I pray for all of us, Lord, as we are in a season, it feels like in a cloud of unknowing. We don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know really where to turn. We've got a lot going on, but we know that you're not absent or that you're drawing us, that you speak to us through your word, that you speak to our souls, Lord, as we sing songs of praise, that you lead us in worship. God, we know that you have accomplished salvation for us. So, Lord, we consider you above all. Would we look to Jesus? Would we see you, God, as our great high priest, as the one who makes a way? And would you bring rest to our souls, Lord? God, we're so grateful for the hope that you've given us in Jesus. And we pray all of this in Christ's name and on behalf of his finished work with confidence in it. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks, y'all. Um, be praying for you. Feel free to reach out to me if you need anything. Um, again, I'm keeping Facebook Messenger on my phone, so if you need to PM me that way, you can. Um, you guys got my email. You can also reach out to me that way or my phone number if you have it. Um, just let's stay in touch. Um, let's make sure that we are in God's word, that we're communicating with each other. Um, again, everything I've read, the CDC seems to say that if you're in groups of, of 10 or less, that's totally fine and that you should just, you know, take precautions, wash your hands as you come in and wash your hands before you go in your home. Don't share, you know, food from a common bowl and don't do those things. Just make sure that you're wise in that. But um, there's no reason to say that you guys maybe couldn't spend some time together, maybe get together with another couple um, just to have some of that human interaction and encourage each other. Be, be sure that you're wise and um, that you're taking the precautions you need to love your family well. So grateful for each of you. So thankful um, for the encouragement I've received from so many. Uh, just praying for you in these dark days, uh, but knowing that we have a great light and a great hope and that we can trust in the Lord. So I hope you guys are well. Thanks for sticking with us.